looking at Ephesians chapter 2, I'm reading from verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you very much, and I do apologise to the tree family. I didn't mean to cause so. Okay, um, please keep your Bibles open at um, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, why don't we just start with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a light. Thank you that it's a sword. Thank you that by it is found the way of eternal life, the way of salvation. And we pray that you might open our hearts and minds to the wonder and the glory of this good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For any who perhaps are here and do not yet know him, we pray, Lord, that today will be the day when they come to see with great clarity the wonder and the glory of, uh, of your forgiveness. And for all of us, we remain. May today be the day when we think to ourselves, if I wasn't already converted, I'd be converted today. And we pray for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10, but then jumping down to 19 to 22 as well. Uh, Paul opens chapter 2. It's, it's depressing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a devastating critique of the human condition both yours and mine, verses 1 to 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects. What sort of like, tell us what you really think, Paul. Well, there it is. So relentless, in fact, is this description that Paul gives of the human condition that it appears some translations can't even cope with it. Uh, if you've got an RSV, um, not many do these days, but if you have an RSV, it actually begins chapter 2 with the words, and you he made alive when you were dead. Uh, they bring made alive forward from verse 4, they bring it forward into verse 1 to somehow perhaps relieve the relentless pessimism of this sentence that Paul opens chapter 2 with. I think we get a really good sense of Paul's effect when you read it this way. You, 
being dead, dead in your trespasses and sins, the trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the very ones among whom we too live in the lusts of the flesh, all of us being objects of wrath. That's how one translates it. There's a relentless pessimism about that, isn't there? A relentless indictment of how we once, or perhaps still, do live. Notice firstly what lies behind this devastating critique. Uh, Paul says that uh, in verse 1, that you were dead in your transgressions and sin. When did that happen? Well, he says when you followed the ways of this world, when you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, when you gratified the cravings of your sinful nature. The world, the flesh and the devil. Three very familiar sources of rebellion, aren't they? In the same way that we might say that, see, character in a teenage teenage person ruined when they begin to keep wrong company. And you can see that happen sometimes, can't you, when they take up with the wrong friends and get mixed up with the wrong crowd and you begin to see good character begin to deteriorate, leading them further and further into degradation. Paul says the company that we once kept, those with whom we once chose to live, the world, used here as the complete anti-God state of mind in verse 2, the devil, the very personification of hostility toward God, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and the flesh, not our physical bodies but our sinful natures, the desires that crave sin. It was living, he says, with that unholy trinity in your lives which lay behind your very deadness to the things of God. Notice too that he's addressing not just the Gentiles in the Ephesian church. The Gentiles, of course, were the non-Jews, so the world was divided. According to the Jews, they were divided into two groups of people, only two kinds of people. You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew. If you're a Jew, you're called a Gentile. So most, if not all of us, would be Gentiles. We're not Jews. Paul is addressing here the Ephesian church, and he's addressing the Gentiles. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But notice that he's including himself and his companions, in other words, Jews, in that description as well. As for you in verse 1, writing to the church of Ephesus, but all of us also in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, that is, among the world, the flesh and the devil, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Like the rest, we too, Respectable, upright Jewish Pharisee like the Apostle Paul were by nature objects of wrath. The religious conformist and the idolatrous rebel, Paul saying there was no real difference. All of us were dead in our transgressions. It's easy, isn't it, to classify people, uh, to see some people as being more needy of forgiveness than others, meet somebody and you think, well, gee, they really do need forgiveness. So I'd like to look at ourselves in the mirror and think, no, 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 that's reasonably fortunate, I think, to, to have me on board. <laughs> <laughs> often often, often it's, it's, it's nothing more than respectability, is it? That's the difference. Um, a number of years ago now, I was, when I was in Paris, as a, I was a Presbyterian pastor in, in Blacktown in the western suburbs of Sydney. And um, being Presbyterian, um, 
Uh, I therefore was on committees, um, Presbyterians love committees, uh, it's what we do very well. And uh, I used to go in for a regular committee meeting in the city at head office. And uh, one night it went very late, and so I was catching a Sydney train from, from Central uh, back to Blacktown, which is quite a long distance. And uh, it was quite late at night, and uh, the train stopped at around Redfern, I think it was, and um, two guys got on uh, who were obviously very, very drunk. It was one of those double-storey trains, so they came in on the bottom section, uh, on, the, on the middle section, and they had to choose. Do they go up or do they go down? So they came up, and there were about a dozen of us, including me, sitting on the, in this carriage, um, sort of 9.30, 10 at night. And um, what happened was what happens every time on a Sydney train, if you're not familiar with this, when somebody awkward gets on, somebody who has perhaps mental health issues or in some way or other is, is seen as being beyond the realm of respectability, as soon as they came up, every eye dropped and everybody was suddenly very intent on whatever it was that they were reading in front of them. Uh, it's just a way of avoiding eye contact, hoping that they would keep reading. So I did what everybody else did. Drop my eyes and I'm staring at the book thinking, don't come near me, don't come near me. I was sitting on one of those by myself in one of those three seats. So the guy staggered, the, the, his mate stayed downstairs, but the guy staggered up and um, stopped at my, my seat and then sat down next to me. And so that's how we sat for a little while. I'm staring at the book. He's sitting there smoking and staring at me. Um, he, le he leaned over. And now, now, I have to say, he had breath that would have wilted a rainforest. <laughs> and he leaned over to me and he said, you don't like me sitting next to you, do you? <laughs> now, he had me there because he was praying that he'd go away. <laughs> but I thought that was probably the inappropriate thing to say in the context. Um, and so I said the first thing that came into my mind, um, and I said, no, I am very happy for you to be sitting next to me. I said, but I don't know how you feel about sitting next to a Presbyterian clergyman. <laughs> <laughs> in hindsight, it wasn't the most sensitive thing to have said, but I actually worked the trick. Uh, when he found out I was a Christian, he then started telling me about his plans for life, that uh, he was looking forward to somewhere around the age of 21, uh, settling down with a good woman on the pension and living out the rest of his life. Uh, he told me about heavy metal Christian rock bands, did you know they exist? Heavy metal Christian rock bands that he was familiar with. And when his much drunker and more aggressive mate came up and wanted to pick a fight, um, my new friend defended me and said, no, he's okay. And uh, when they got somewhere like heading towards Blacktown, but before my stop, they both got off and they staggered away down into the darkness. And I looked out the window and I just prayed a simple prayer. I said, Lord, no one else. Please don't let anyone else like that get on the train. <laughs> let me get home without having to have any more contact. <laughs> now, I want to ask you a question. Who was the greatest sinner? That 19-year-old drunk or the respectable clergyman sitting next to him? I may well, had I been game, turn to him and said, as for you, you are dead. And I too lived among you at one time. Like you, I was by nature an object of God's wrath. Because I was. As Bob Dylan famously sang, I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead, when I stepped out of the womb. It can seem strange, can't it? Even offensive thing to say of someone. Someone who's not yet a believer. But they're dead. 
in their transgressions? How can they be dead when they're creative musicians? How can they be dead when they're lively conversationalists? How can they be dead when they're empathic and wise counsellors and warm-hearted and gracious and cheerful hosts? How can they be dead when they're witty dinner party conversationalists and intellectually stimulating? How can they be dead when they come along and they do something nice for you even though they don't need to? How can they be dead when in fact they are simply wonderful people whose company you enjoy and whose many parts of their lives perhaps you admire? You see, the Bible says they may be any or all of those things, but if they are not Christian believers, then they are dead in their transgressions. They are dead before God, as unresponsive as a corpse, is how John Stott describes it. No sensitivity to the personal reality of Jesus, deaf to the leading of the Holy Spirit, sitting under a judgment from God, which is an eternal death sentence because of their rebellion. How does that make you feel? Sometimes I've been a Christian now for a long time and I've noticed how easy it is for us to fall into the language which is disrespectful to those who are not yet believers. Uh, if you ever sat and stood in a circle of Christians and had one person who's not yet a believer and you've known that they weren't but no one else did to hear the way Christians talk about non-Christians sometimes can be embarrassing, can be awkward and abrasive. When we really weep, weep for the lost, weep for the fact that they were once and still are dead in their sins and we were once dead in our sins and it's only the goodness of God that we're not. But to weep for them our hearts break for them, surely. How can they not? To pray for them and to love them. You see, my crime as I sat on that train with my drunk 19-year-old friend was I didn't love him enough. I didn't love him at all. I certainly wasn't weeping for him. In fact, my heart was shrinking from him rather than breaking for him. I didn't want to share a seat with someone that Christ had died for. It's a terrible indictment, isn't it? We so often can grow hard to those who are lost. Paul tells us not only that we are and once were dead in our transgressions, but he tells us three things that God has done. And he gives us some reasons as to why God has done it. Firstly, what's God done? Well, verse 5. Notice those wonderful words, starting at verse 4, but because of his great love for us, that's got to be the best but in the Bible, doesn't it? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Notice down in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. And still in verse 6, he seated us with him, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Made us alive, raised us up, seated us with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Over the years, I've had reason to view a number of corpses. Um, my reaction, I've noticed, is always the same. I am always shocked by the utter deadness of the corpse. Silly thing to say at one level. 
but it's the very lifelessness, the fixed, inert lifelessness of death. The soul is gone, the life is gone. And every time I am reminded that no doctor, no machine, and certainly no decision by that person can be made to resurrect them again. Hopeless to save ourselves because we were dead to God in our sin. But, but God made us alive in Christ. And that's good news, isn't it? Breathe new life into a dead soul. Gave vigour and vitality and energy and responsiveness back to us. So that now, as Paul says, we are no longer dead to God, but we have been made alive in him, we have been raised with him, and we are even seated in all the glory of heaven with him. And so in verses 7 to 9, Paul spells it out that God raised us up with Christ, seated us in the heavenly realms, in order that, this is the reason that he did it, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. Extraordinary news, isn't it? That though we were once dead, God made us alive. Though once we rebelled, God forgave us. Though once we were far off, God brought us near. And He did it not because He saw something in us to make us worthwhile to Him, but because He loved us and showed grace. Free, unmerited goodness towards us. We saw in the first talk this morning something of the lavish extravagance of God's grace in creation. And what we see here is that same character on view in the lavish extravagance of your salvation. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That God did not spare his own son. It's interesting, isn't it? You go back to Jonah in the in the Old Testament. God says to Jonah, I want you to go and preach repentance to Nineveh. And Jonah, of course, goes in the opposite direction. You find out towards the end of the book why he does that. Because Jonah knows God and he knows God's character. And he knows that if he preaches repentance and the people repent, that God will forgive. And Jonah doesn't want that. He knows the Ninevites too. He doesn't like them. They're a nasty bunch. And so he doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. And so he heads in the opposite direction. God, you know, the whale, the fish, all this stuff, eventually throws him up and there he is, sticking a fish, walking his way through, through Nineveh. And he preaches repentance. And what happens? The people of Nineveh, of Nineveh repent. What does Jonah do? He goes outside the city, he sits under a tree and he has one of the biggest dummy spits in all of the Bible. I told you this had happened. It's the very thing I knew would occur. I knew if I did that, they repented and you would go and forgive. That's what he's angry about. He's angry about the very gracious. Why? Because for Jonah it appears to be a complete and utter waste. Why would you throw your love around on people like the Ninevites? People so undeserving. Why would you throw your love around on a, on a drunk man on a train. Why would you throw your love around in a highly respectable Presbyterian clergyman? 
part of the lavish, extravagant character of God. How is it that Paul describes it? He's writing to Timothy. And he says, he says, once I was a violent man, I was a blasphemer, and I was a persecutor of the church. He says, that's who I was. Three things. Violent. And the word that he uses for violent in, in Timothy is the sort of is the word that implies that he got a kick out of the violence. He enjoyed it. I was violent, I was a blasphemer, and I was a persecutor. But God poured out his grace upon me, he says, by the teaspoon. Just measured out barely enough. It's not what he says, is it? He says, God poured his love out on me, lavished his grace. And the image that he uses is of standing under a, under a waterfall and the water is cascading down and God's grace has cascaded down and it has drenched Paul to the bone and there are puddles of grace all around him. That's the kind of lavish extravagance that God has poured out upon Paul. It's the kind of lavish extravagance that God has poured out upon you. In that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I've got um, one son, and I cannot, in my wildest imaginings, ever imagine sacrificing. Never. But God, who is rich in mercy, gave his own son for you, for me, and for all who believe in him. Notice how Paul describes it, the incomparable riches of God's grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And what has he done for us? The resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, we too have been raised with him. The ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, Paul says that God has raised us up in Christ Jesus. The seating of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, Paul says that God has also seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ. All of the glorious exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God has graciously allowed you and I to share in because we are in union with him. It is over and over and over again Paul's intention to remind us of the sheer extravagant, lavish grace of God. And why has he done it? Well, Paul says it's all grounded in the character of God. Verse 4, because of God's great love for us. Still in verse 4, because this is the God who is rich in mercy. Verse 7, because of God's incomparable riches of grace. And still in verse 7, it's because of God's kindness. Love, mercy, grace, kindness. Those are the reasons for our salvation. They are the reasons why God has, has shown his love to us. Can you buy love? No. Can you demand mercy? No. Can you insist upon grace? Of course not. Can you earn someone's kindness? No, you cannot. What holds these character traits of God together is their utter undeservedness and their prodigal nature. The sheer extravagance of God. His great love. Notice the adjectives Paul uses. His great love. His rich mercy. The incomparable riches of his grace. There's nothing mean-spirited or half-hearted or token or begrudging about God. But this is the glory of God. The very weight of God, the substance, the godness of God. And it's there 
in this grace that he pours out upon sinners like you and me. And Paul wants us to understand something of the character of God because what he wants his people, God's people to be doing is to be responding in the appropriate way to this lavish experience of God's grace. See, Jesus was right. If you've been forgiven little, you'll love little. If you don't think that God has really done much of a big thing for you, then you will be half-hearted about the worship that you bring him. But if we begin to plumb the depths of our sin and of our lostness, we will begin to plumb the vastness of God's love for us. And then we will offer to God a worship which is fitting and honouring of him. And so Paul then unpacks in the remainder of the chapter two great outcomes of this grace that God has shown. The first one's in verse 10. He says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You and I are God's work of art. Now I must admit when I stand in the mirror that doesn't seem very likely, but, <laughs> but, but I am. Perhaps not to look at, but in character, that is what I'm meant to be. That is what you're meant to be, God's work of art. I think probably my favourite um, work of art is Blue Poles um, by Jackson Pollock. I remember when it was first bought, I think it was Gough Whitman was the Prime Minister, and they bought Blue, Blue Poles. And there was a huge public outcry. Um, spent a million dollars back then, a million dollars on a work of art that looked like somebody had just been in a field and had been splodging paint away. Dripping, um, which is what it does look like. Um, when Paul and I were back, we backpacked around Europe, and um, way back in the 1980s, we saw an exhibition of Jackson Pollock. Up until that point, I, I'd always thought that Jackson Pollock had painted blue poles the way he did, but he didn't know how to paint. Uh, and they had a video on his life, and it showed him with these great big canvases out in a field with big pots of four litres of paint and a huge paintbrush that used for that's used for a house walking up and down, splashing the paint and dripping it, doing all of these things. And it just confirmed everything, I thought. <laughs> but then we went and had a look at some of his other works of art. And what we realised is that a lot of his early works of art are simply stunning. Remarkable. They look like people for a start, which is a high, high priority for me. But they were astonishing works of art. Very, very, very talented men. And so I went back to Blue Poles with that thinking if this is the kind of painter it is, then maybe Blue Poles is not just the splodges that I think it might be. And gradually, every time I went to Canberra, I'd sit in front of Blue Poles. And I'd just sit there for a while and gradually fell in love with it. You see, in many ways, Blue Poles is Jackson Pollock's masterpiece. And you are God's masterpiece like that. For people to sit in front of and to gaze upon and to fall in love with God because of it. An extraordinary opportunity that is. We testify to God's glory. We witness to the wonder of God, to the power of the gospel, to the transforming work of God by His Spirit. See, this is the proper place for good works. We get all hung up about, oh, I don't want to mention good works in case it undermines grace, and we never quite know what to do with good works. But this is the proper place. After salvation when God's grace has been lavished upon you, 
when you've experienced this extravagant goodness of God. To then know that you are God's workmanship. He has laid hold of you. He has brought you from darkness into light, from death into life. And you are his work of art, daily transforming you to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said once, I cannot scold myself to do good. It's what we often want to do, isn't it, when we, when we find ourselves struggling with sin. Or when, I know when I was a pastor, whenever people in the church thought the young people in the church were acting up, they'd always come to me and they'd say, you need to tell them to behave. Uh, and uh, you know, occasionally they were right. Most of the time I thought they were just being normal young people. But, uh, but occasionally they were right. But scolding was not the answer. Me standing up from the pulpit and haranguing them was not going to do any good at all. When you struggle with sin, or when you see other people struggling with sin, you need to preach the gospel. What you need to do. If you're struggling with sin, you need to preach it to yourself. Preach to yourself that old story of God's extravagant goodness and mercy and grace. Because when that has laid hold of us, and we've begun to grasp the depths of God's love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the natural, obvious response will always be, Lord, take my life and let it be given over Lord, to thee. It's always going to be the case. You can't understand the gospel without, without wanting to be God's workmanship. You can't understand the gospel without wanting to have a life that will bring glory to this great God who has saved you. So preach the gospel. It's the best way I know for dealing with sin. That's the first outcome, Paul says. The second outcome, though, is similar, and he spends the rest of the chapter dealing with it. We're not going to look at verses 11 to 18. We don't have enough time. In some ways, he's really just repeating himself, what he's already said. But I just want to duck down to... Uh, uh, to verses 19 through to verse 22. And that is to say that as a result of the gospel, as a result of salvation, as a result of us being brought from darkness into light and God laying hold of us in the Lord Jesus and giving us his free forgiveness and love, something dramatic has happened to us. We are no longer, verse 19, no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's the outcome. The outcome of believing the gospel. You are now God's workmanship. You are now his artwork, his masterpiece, but secondly, who are you? Well, verse 19, you're a citizen. You're no longer an Australian citizen. Your passport is stamped heaven. Heaven is your home. And so heaven is where your heart must lie. Not only that, but still in verse 19, Paul says you are even members of God's household. It's one thing to be a citizen, isn't it? But to be a part of the very household of God himself. One of the great spiritual blessings is that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, that we can call him our Father who is in heaven. J.R. Packer says it's the highest privilege of the gospel. But notice what Paul says. He says not only are you no longer foreigners, 
you're no longer aliens, but rather fellow citizens with God's people and, secondly, members of God's household. You can see the circles are getting closer. It's becoming more and more intimate. But notice finally what he says is that you are actually the holy temple of God. Verse 21. The holy temple of God. And down in verse 22, in Jesus you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You, the church, you are the temple of God. Now, Paul would have understood the impact of what he was saying on the church that he was writing to. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and we know from Acts 19, as well as from history, that that, that Ephesus was famous. Paul ran into all sorts of strife, didn't he? because his preaching began to impact the temple cult of Artemis or Diana. There was even a riot calling out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the reason is because the worship of Artemis or Diana was big business for the people of Ephesus. On the very outskirts of Ephesus, there was the temple of Artemis. It was one of the original seven wonders of the ancient world. The men who wrote, listed the seven wonders of the ancient world, a man called Antipater, described the temple of Artemis in this way. He said, When I saw the house of Artemis, it mounted to the clouds, and every other marvel lost its brilliance. And I said, Goodness, apart from Mount Olympus itself, where all the gods were supposed to live, the sun never looked on anything so grand. That was the temple in Ephesus at the time Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. They knew what a temple looked like and they knew what a temple was for. 120 gold and silver lined pillars to support the roof. Paintings and sculptures from the very finest of all the artists of the Greek Empire. And Paul says to the church in Ephesus, this church meeting in the very glory of the ancient world, he says, that's not the truth. You you call that a temple? That's not a temple. This is a temple. And he points to the church in Ephesus. This group of believers meeting in this vast cosmopolitan city, worshipping a crucified God, evangelised by a man who was forced to flee the city for his own safety. And Paul says... You want the temple? Well, there's the temple. Not over there. Not Artemis. Not all that worldly ground. It's that little group of believers who are meeting in Ephesus. You are the temple of the living God. That's what God's done. Laid hold of you in the gospel. Made you his work of art. And built you together as a community to be the temple of God in Port Macquarie. The word that Paul uses for temple is not the word that he would have used had he wished to speak of the temple in general. He uses the word for the inner shrine of the temple. The actual place in the Old Testament where the glory of God descended and where God met with his people, the holy place in other words. That's why in verse 21 he, he describes it as the holy temple of the Lord because God is holy and so the place where he chooses to dwell by his spirit must be holy it is you the people of God the church who are the holy temple 
of God. Living witnesses to the transforming power of the gospel. What is it that Jesus says? They'll know that you are my followers. They'll know you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. Because people will look at you, the holy temple of God in Port Macquarie, and they will say, that is amazing. They are the biggest rad, ragbag group of people that you could ever hope, but they love one another. You wouldn't get a more diverse group of personalities brought together in that place, but look at how they love one another. Testimony to the transforming power of God. Left to yourselves, you'd all be at one another's throats. But you're not. Because God has laid hold of you and made you his holy temple. The witnesses to God's power to redeem and to sanctify and to transform. See, that's what people have a right to expect. To be able to look at us in our churches, in our Bible study groups, in the group of Christian friends that we hang out with, and see in us evidence to the power of God to heal and recreate through the gospel of Jesus. They've got a right to expect that. Have you ever found yourself saying to an unbeliever who's been discouraged by the church, don't look at Christians, look at Christ? Have you ever said that? I've said it. It's absolute nonsense. It's wrong. Jesus says that's precisely where you should look. You want to see me? Well, have a look at my body. Have a look at the church. Because there, people have a right to expect to see the evidence of God's transforming power through the gospel. That's why Paul goes on in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 to talk about the way believers in Ephesus should live together. He goes into detail about how they speak to one another, how they forgive one another, how they maintain healthy and holy relationships with one another, how they're to put on their whole armour of God to live lives of faithful discipleship and holy obedience. Because they, the church, have been summoned by God and the outcome of that summons is that they together, all these works of art gathered together, are to be the holy place where God dwells as a living witness to those around. If you ever have visited the ruins of Ephesus, you may well have also visited the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. Uh, when Paul and I were there um, a decade or more ago, um, I was very much looking forward to seeing it. On our way back from visiting the, um, the ruins of Ephesus, uh, we stopped by a little gully. Uh, it's just literally a gully and it's got one Greek-looking post pole, stone pole sticking out. There is so little there that not even tourists gather. There's not even somebody there spruiking water for you, which is the case at every other tourist destination in, in Turkey. Nothing. That is the site of the Temple of Artemis. It's been pillaged and looted and worn down and destroyed, and all that is left is an overgrown pillar. But you may well ask, well, what happened to the Church of Ephesus? How did they fare? Well, we hear of them last in, a th in Revelation, don't we? Revelation chapter 2. And although they seem to have been doing a few things well, we read that they have lost their first love for God. They have fallen, Jesus says, from a great height. 
and they were warned that they needed to repent and go back to doing the things they did at first. You see, they'd forgotten that they were citizens of heaven. They'd forgotten that they were members of God's family and they had forgotten that they were a holy temple of God. And with the loss of their first love came a loss of that wonder at the grace and the goodness of God. And with that loss of wonder had come about a loss of holiness and a loss of obedience. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, Repent. Go back to doing the things you first did. Recover your first love. How are they going to do that? By preaching the gospel to themselves, of course. By reminding themselves again of the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of God revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the holy temple of God. And you're doing really well after being with you for, what, 15 hours? I think you're terrific. <laughs> You've been saved by God's grace, his extravagant, lavish grace. So live that way. As God's individual works of art, but together as God's holy temple, so that you are faithful in proclaiming the saving mercies of God and you are faithful in the way you live out testimony to that transforming power of God. Living lives, as Excel says elsewhere, of such conspicuous holiness <coughs> that others might see your good works and give glory to the God who laid hold of you and saved you by his extravagant love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love which will not let us go. And thank you for loving us in the Lord Jesus Christ so that while we were still sinners, yet Christ Jesus died for us. And if that is not only good news, but new news for any here today, then we pray that today will be the day that they come to you in faith and repentance mm. and lay the burden of their guilt at your feet and receive that wonderful promise from heaven that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Mm. And Father, I pray for the holy temple of God in Port Macquarie. And I thank you for them. I pray that daily they might live lives of such conspicuous holiness that others might see their good deeds and give glory to you that they would persevere in being faithful in both proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus and living out that gospel of the Lord Jesus in order that as the holy temple of God they might indeed give witness to your saving power through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mm. Amen. Amen. Amen.